questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. There is another force in the universe of our reality, another context for comprehending what has been going on for millennia, and especially in the last 70 years. Secret Machines is the result of input from scientists, engineers, intelligence officers, and military officials, a group we call the advisors, and transcends the speculation of journalists, historians, and others whose conclusions are often either misinformed or only tease around the edges of the secret machines. The phenomenon is not what they think it is. It is, in fact, much more serious and potentially much more threatening than they can imagine. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. Subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to this full interview and all of our material. Tonight, we discuss gods, man, and war, an official secret machines investigation of the UFO phenomenon with our special guest, Peter Lavenda, a veteran of this radio program and a native of the Bronx, New York. Peter has lived or traveled all over the United States and the world in the course of his life, work, and research. As an executive with an American telecommunications manufacturer, he was based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, for more than seven years. Before that, he was one of the first Americans to do business successfully in China. He has an MA in Religious Studies and Asian Studies from FIU and speaks a variety of languages, some of them dead. And we have a more comprehensive bio right on our website. And directly from South Florida, I believe he's still there, I'd like to welcome Peter Lavenda. Hello, Peter, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Hello, Mel. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And are you still in South Florida? Yes, I am. Okay, good. I said that right. Well, Peter, you co-wrote the book Guts, Man, and War, an official secret machines investigation of the UFO phenomenon with Blink-182's frontman and recipient of the UFO Researcher of the Year Award, Tom DeLong. Tell us about your experience working with Tom DeLong in writing the book. Well, it was a little surreal. Um, you know, uh, I, I knew who he was. I mean, I knew the band um, a little bit after my time, you might say, musically, but I, I was very well aware of him. <laughs> And uh, when I got the first contact, I thought it was a hoax, basically. I thought someone was just, you know, trying to fool me. Uh, But, you know, I did enough background research and all the rest of it and realized that I really was in contact with Tom DeLonge. And he was very sincere about this project. Um, This is something that he had been, you know, involved with in one way or another for most of his life. He has had a lifelong fascination with the subject. And I believe he came across... um, the presentation that I did in Amsterdam some years ago on the secret space program. Oh, I remember. And then I think from there, he sort of found out what I was writing about in Sinister Forces and, and all of that. So he decided I'd be the person that he would want to work with, especially when it came to all the nonfiction uh, aspects of this very broad project that he was envisioning. And he wanted really to do some serious research in ways that perhaps had not been done before because he was going to take a completely different approach to the problem of ufology or UFO research. And as we talked about it and talked about it, I felt more and more comfortable with the direction he wanted to go in. It seemed to me like he was doing something a little different uh, where ufology was concerned. And he uh, he was interested in, in having a solid uh, nonfiction almost quasi-academic approach to the material 
that would uh, really reveal this phenomenon in more in more dimensions, let's say, and in, in a larger palette of colors to really understand what this is rather than there was a flying saucer, it came down, and a little green man jumped out. He wanted to go much further than that. He wanted to go uh, and try to find out really what this was and what other people knew about it. And so his approach was quite different, and it's something that I thought was might work. And uh, so we got involved in this project, and we've been working on it uh, ever since. It's been... I guess, over two years now. Honestly, the book is seriously, seriously written. As you say, as you say, it's not, uh, you don't talk about little green man jumping out of a spaceship. It's very serious. It's written almost like a, you know, like an academic. So I'm glad to see a book like that out there now. Now, for those who may not know the term, please define secret machine, secret with a K, which sounds like mystical. I'm sure it's, it's deliberate, isn't it? It is. Um, That that uh, that spelling was totally Tom's idea. He he called this project Secret Machines from the very very beginning, from the very first time I spoke with him. He was referring to it that way, and the K has a lot of different implications. Um, in the first case, uh, spelling secret this way is kind of a street way of spelling secret. Uh, he of course is is talking to a younger generation. Uh, those who are under 40, perhaps under 30. So he was looking at, you know, his his background is, of course, uh, music. He's been a musician for all of his life. Yeah. He's Southern California, um, you know, the skateboard sort of crowd and, and people like that. So the secret was meant to to reflect the youthful approach to the to the subject matter on the one hand, but it also has other implications. And as I research more deeply the word secret. Uh, and trying to to understand some more some of the nuance that we were trying to achieve with it, um, I, I realized that of course in Greek, uh, the word secret is mystikos, and mystikos is the same word we get the the root of the, our word mystic or mysticism, or mystical. So, a machine that is at once secret, and at the same time mystical, it seemed to it seemed to wrap in that in that one term, a lot of what we were trying to say about uh, the experience of the UFO in general. It's a machine. Um, it has machine-like qualities or characteristics on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's not a machine like we've ever seen or experienced before ourselves, not like a machine we've built before. It's something very, very different. And there's a mystical aspect to it because of a lot of the people who've been involved as UFO experiencers or people who've had Uh, even tangential contact with this phenomenon always come away with some kind of weird mystical reaction to it, a religious, almost spiritual reaction in many cases, the experience of awe, the experience sometimes of terror, the experience of something otherworldly. How can a machine be otherworldly, you know, since we credit ourselves with having built and developed machines in, in human civilization? They're the, the natural Uh, end point of what we've been doing with with science and technology and yet here's a machine that we have not built that we have not designed that is by its very definition otherworldly so all of that is wrapped up in that concept of secret machines well i'm glad tom is on board in the ufo community and, and joining forces with Serious, serious researchers like you, Peter, because I think we need an influx of a younger crowd. No offense to all my colleagues or the attendees at, at conferences, but you hardly see a young crowd 
at these conferences, and I've always wondered why. We need, you know, an influx of, of a younger crowd to take the torch in the future, don't you think? Well, I, I firmly believe that. And I think that um, I was gratified we had a, a kind of small rollout of what we were doing uh, in Encinitas uh, near San Diego a couple of months ago. And, of course, it's Tom DeLonge and it's Blink-182. So the crowd was largely young people. It looked like college-age uh, kids for the most part. So that was very gratifying to see. And they were very interested in the subject matter. They weren't just sit there trying to get their guitars autographed. You know, They were actually there because they wanted to know about what was this project and why was it important and why did we feel it was it was that important. Um, the, the young people are going to bring something to this. They're going to bring an energy and a, and a, a willingness to see a problem from different angles, um, from different dimensions, and that's what's kind of needed right now. The people who've been in this subject for a long time, for 20, 30, 40 years, uh, are pretty much they, they're, they're at where they're going to be without you know naming names or getting too you know nasty about it which is not my intention yeah. at all i'm not trying to say they're a bunch of old fuddy duddies I, I don't want to be quoted <laughs> saying that but what it is is that they're they they have been embedded in this for so long that sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees and we just want the extra input we're not saying the old experts are wrong by any stretch of the imagination. But what we are saying is that maybe a fresh perspective on this is what we need. Just a new way of looking at the problem, especially people who've grown up with technology, uh, people who grew up with smartphones, people who grew up with the Internet. Um, I, I, have, I keep finding myself having to, to remind people that I did not, you know, when I was born – we had a black and white television set with a seven-inch screen and a box that weighed about 300 pounds. Um, it, this was, there was no internet. There was no personal computer. Uh, there were no flat-screen TVs. There was, none of this existed. And it, you get a certain mindset when you, when you grow up that way and you start to bring on the internet and bring on the computers, the personal computers and, and the smartphones and, and bring it on this way. You accommodate it with the rest of your background, with the rest of how you grew up. But we're now talking about people who grew up with uh, Internet access and, you know, Wi-Fi and smartphones. And it's that sensitivity, it's that kind of understanding of technology that maybe is what we need to look at this entire subject again and come away with some new perspectives. You know, that is so true what you just said. And we, we're the last generation to have one foot in this technological world with iPhones, computers, and so on, and another foot in the non-technological world. Growing up, my best technology was a black and white TV with a, a clothes hanger as an antenna. So there take it from there. Now, Muse, there's another band out there, very popular one, that wrote you know songs like uh, Exopolitics. They seem to write the songs and the lyrics, but they don't come out as Tom DeLonge did. And I wonder why, is it because they, they fear ridicule and they just, you know, venting what they want via their, their lyrics? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's still a lot of, you know, uh, fear associated with coming out with this type of material. I mean, I had, I had, I'm, uh, you know, I, I represent that. I mean, because a lot of people told me when I first became involved with this project, although I had written about 
uh, the UFO phenomenon in Sinister Forces, right. and I had made that presentation in Amsterdam that was really more focused on the historical aspects of it and the connection of various people involved in ufology who are also involved in politics and in the United States primarily. So I was looking at it from that point of view, which is kind of safe. But now to get involved with, with Tom and this project, people cautioned me. They said, man, you're going to ruin your reputation and your credibility if you get involved in the little green men thing, you know, and the UFOs and all of that. And I thought to myself, yeah, well, maybe it's possible, but I'm not bringing anything to this except myself and my background. So why should I be afraid of that? Why should I be feel that my credibility is, uh, is, is in danger? It only would be in danger if I made stuff up. You know, or if I claimed knowledge I did not have, or if I, you know, was was a complete tr true believer in anything and everything that came down the pike where this is concerned, and I'm not. I believe, let's say, if you want to use the term belief, which is a loaded term, and I don't really like to use it. Let's say I accept the existence of UFOs and of the phenomenon in general because of the evidence not because I've had an experience or because I've seen a UFO, which I have not, um, not because I've seen aliens, which I have not. I base my reaction to the subject based on on the evidence, which is voluminous, uh, certainly enough, you know, to, to, to take to court and, you know, and to prove a case as far as I'm concerned. So I bring that kind of sensitivity to it. Uh, we proceed on the assumption that this phenomenon is something real, represents reality represents a real thing a real experience and if we accept it from the beginning um what does that mean what are the implications if we all accept okay there's there's the ufo phenomenon there are these things in the sky people do have these experiences they have direct experiences with with other uh, life forms let's say or any of this w what are the implications of that we have to move on from there we can't keep trying to prove it all the time. To me, that was a dead end. And I think for Tom also, the the insistence that we're going to keep proving, we're going to prove this is real. I mean, my goodness, there are hundreds of books. There's thousands of declassified files. There's all sorts of sightings. There's no need to prove it. There is a need maybe to explain it. There is a need to understand it and a need to wonder what the implications are for our culture and our society in general. And we want to start from there. We want to go from there into you know into unknown territory because too many of us are caught in this cycle of let's prove it let's let's get all the sightings in one book you know let's make it impossible for someone to say there's nothing to it well we're on board we know we're there okay now what where do we go from there and we find that's where a lot of people sort of stall out they've spent their entire uh, lives trying to prove this exists or or, or waiting for disclosure from the government, you know, from, from, you know, an official person to come and say, yes, you know, uh, you know, we bless you, you know, yes, this is true. We give it the imprimatur and the nihil obstat, you know, in Catholic terms, we, we're, we're giving you the seal of approval. Yes, there's UFOs. Well, okay, now what, you know, so we're at the now what phase. What is this? What does this imply? What are the implications? Um, is this dangerous? Is this benign? Um, what does it mean for all of us? Is, is there a threat to national security? All of these are the questions that we started asking right away without waiting for someone to show us, you know, a dead alien body or a piece of a flying saucer.
And we'll discuss the disclosure part coming from government, which I think it's a notion that perhaps is a little bit old. I think the notion that only governments have the monopoly of contact and disclosure has to be revisited. But let's yes. begin. Did governments, Peter, begin a disinformation campaign thousands of years ago, back when religions were first formed? I don't think it was a disinformation campaign. I think that people were struggling with the experience of having contact with something otherworldly. I, I'm calling it a UFO contact, basically, that there was a there was this initial point of contact for civilizations when they were confronted with this, and they did not have the language. They did not have the vocabulary to describe it. They didn't have a context for it. And so a lot of these stories that we, we inherited from our ancestors in terms of religion were attempts to describe this contact in the best ways they knew how. And that's what we got. We got all sorts of bits and pieces of information. It's like the blind men with the elephant, you know, so everybody had a piece of this. Everybody had some experience of this contact that they were trying then to describe. I don't think it was disinformation, really. I think it was just the inability of people to really come to terms with it. And this may be a key to understanding what's going on today as well with government and with the military. Is it purely disinformation? There's definitely been disinformation. There's no question about it. In the 20th century, uh, in particular, in the last 70 years, there have been you know disinformation uh, programs, I think, that were in place to manipulate or control this data for a lot of reasons, which we get into eventually in our, our trilogy of books on this. But I don't think initially it was disinformation. I think that the contact was made. No one could control that message. There was no government in place you know, to say you didn't see what you saw, you know, um, that this is something, you know, this is something else. This is not for you. This is, you know, you, you're not allowed to know about this. I don't think that happened initially. I think that it was a kind of traumatic event. And I think that like with any trauma victim, you keep reliving that event. You keep trying to make sense of it. You keep trying to get to the bottom of it to neutralize its effect on you. And I think that as as a as a human race, we've been doing that since that initial point of contact. The only what you're saying is true makes you wonder if this is what we have this catastrophobia and this is why Hollywood, with the exception of maybe E.T. and, you know, Starman and some other movies, usually it's something that destroys the world. And this is why we have this fear. But I'm going to be jumping around because I have a lot of notes here. Did we invent God to account for our spiritual need to touch the stars. From my point of view, and, and I make that sort of obvious in the very opening pages of Secret Machines, Gods, from my point of view, we are, um, I don't say that we've created gods to explain this. I think gods was our way of explaining what this was. Um, we measured ourselves as human beings, as homo sapiens, against this contact, and the contact seemed to be more powerful than us. It seemed to be wiser than us, to have more knowledge or more capability than we have, and so we had to find a way to designate this contact. We had to find a frame to put around it because... 
Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.